trail and ultra runners what is going on what's happening i'm really excited everyone is here with me today welcome to another episode of the coop cast as always i'm your humble host coach jason coop and on the podcast today we have the dynamic duo of nicholas bosserin and sebastian hasinas to discuss all about how heat stress affects the body and how that heat stress is different in marathons versus ultra marathons Their recent paper, which is titled Heat Stress Challenges in Marathons versus Ultra Endurance Running, it caught my eye as it has this insightful infographic contained within it that beautifully and simply illustrates what athletes should be watching out for in these different events. A link to that research will be in the show notes. Nicholas is a researcher and medical doctor in, of all places, Reunion Island, where the infamous Diagonal de Food, that's what I meant to say, is held. And that is one of my bucket list races. I cannot wait to have the opportunity to do that particular race. This paper that actually caught my eye was Nicholas's PhD thesis. And his supervisor, Sebastian Hasinas, who's the head of research at Aspatar University in Qatar, he also wanted to join in on the conversation. So let's line this up a little bit. If you can't tell, we have two academics who both live in really hot places. They are runners themselves, so I'm sure that they are living every last bit of the research that they produced. A little bit of a note before this podcast starts, English is not Nicholas's first language, but he was gracious enough to give this interview a go, and I appreciate the fact that he stuck his neck out there a little bit to give us some more information on heat stress. I promise you the content is worth it, so I'm going to get right out of the way. Here's my conversation with Nicholas and Sebastian all about heat stress and ultra endurance events. First off, I, I, I appreciate you guys being on. Um, it's always hard to, it's always interesting to coordinate these, you know, like it's just, uh, we're, we're obviously coordinating things from all over the world. For, first off, uh, Sebastian, where are, you coming, where, are you, where are you coming to us from? So I'm a French originally from the south of France, from Montpellier in the south of France, but I left France uh, 20 years ago going uh, to Guadalupe for uh, three to four years and now I've been located in Qatar in Middle East since 2007, so for 14 years now. Mm, excellent. And Nicholas, where are you coming to us from? Okay, I, I come from Toulouse in South of France too, but uh, I'm in Reunion Island for six years now, I think. Uh, trail running heaven and also... Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's very great. It's, the trail running out there is fantastic. And also more pertinent to this conversation, uh, you guys get copious amounts of heat. And that's what we're going to talk about. Um, so Nicholas, you were the, this was your PhD uh, research, correct, that we're, gonna, that we're going to discuss? Yeah. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Um, first off, like what inspired you to do that? And I'm guessing it has something to do with where you live, but your your PhD research centered around the differences in the heat that athletes experience uh, yeah. in a marathon course compared to trail and ultra running settings. What inspired you to do this research in the first place? The, to answer this question, I think first I have to explain why I started working on thermoregulation physiology in endurance running. And, and I've been living for Reunion Iceland for six years now. And this island is a French overseas department, a small island of 2,000 and 
500 kilometers squares, which is located in the southwest of the Indian Ocean near to South Africa, and precisely near at the east of Madagascar. Uh, this island is um, classified as UNESCO World Heritage Site since 2010. And in this small area, you have like the diversity of a continent. It's incredible. There are three calderas around the summit of Indian Ocean, Le Piton des Neiges, at 3,070 meters. One of the three calderas can only be reached by helicopter or on foot. There is like 20 peaks over 2,000 meters, a large part of humid forest on the east of Iceland, coral reef and lagoon on the west, and uh, probably the most one of the most active volcanoes in the world on the south, the Piton de la Fournaise. And this diversity is like a perfect playground for try running. There is each year over 120 races organized and almost than 20,000 runners who participate. At the end of the October takes place probably one of the most famous ultra races in the world, Le Grand Raid de la Réunion, which brings nearly 6,000 participants over three trail formats of races. Uh, 65 kilometers, uh, 110 kilometers, and the most important, the most famous probably, La Diagonale des Fous, which crosses all the island from south to north over 165 kilometers with almost 10,000 meters of ascent. But despite this paradise environment, <laughs> the difficulty of running on Rainian Island, and in particular on the Diagonale des Fous, is that this island has a tropical climate. You can therefore frequently run in temperature of around 25 to 30 degrees and with very, very high humidity levels of over 70% to 80%. So given the importance of try running on Reunion Island, I naturally start try running at a very, very amateur level when I arrived on the Iceland. And I was quickly confronted with this difficult uh, environmental conditions. As a scientist and a sport physician, I wondered about physiology of thermoregulation. I searched the literature and found that a lot had been published about the repercussions of it during sports. Unfortunately, these publications were almost exclusively limited to endurance events up to the marathon. And then Professor Sebastian Racine, whom I knew a little and who had done a lot of work about thermoregulation physiology, suggested that I started a PhD on the physiology of thermoregulation in neutroendurance running. And then this, this article is the first step of my work and was to identify what are the differences that could be found between marathon and ultramarathon, which could impact in a positive or a negative way the physiology of the organism during a race in hot environment. And um, 
On this paper, we ask if there are any specificities in ultra-endurance running that could disturb or challenge the knowledge we have on thermoregulation physiology that come either from laboratory studies, essentially, or from work on runners of uh, classical uh, endurance events. And so, and so like, like, like many researchers, you're taking a personal experience of yeah. having to run on Reunion Island and saying, I want to yeah. learn more about this. This is so hot. It's so hard for me. I want to learn more about this and apply it to my PhD research. And, and the paper in question, I'm going to provide a link to in the show notes so everybody has access to it. And first off, you have good, really good and very uh, understandable infographics that are associated with yeah. the paper. I think everybody really appreciates that. But let's start by just outlining the major yeah, yeah. thermoregulatory differences between a marathon and an ultramarathon because they're more than more than meets the eye and they're not a lot and people are somewhat surprised or they just don't think about it as much. So what are those major differences, Nicholas? I think to understand the main differences, it is important to review and to um, totally understand the physiology of the thermoregulation during exercise. How does the organism fight against it? What is important to understand is that the main thermal stress and the main source of heat to be evacuated is not linked to the environment, but to the runner himself. Indeed, 20 to 25% of energy released by hydrolyzing of uh, ATP, adenosine triphosphate, the fuel of organism, is using for muscle contraction. That is to say about 70%, 75% to 80% does not contribute to external work, to muscle contraction, and is internally released as heat. This metabolic heat production needs to be dissipated to the environment to limit the increase in cold temperature. This can be done by direct radiation where the body dissipates heat in the form of infrared radiation to cooler object or surface around it. It can also be dissipated by convection and conduction when the air temperature, oh sorry, is colder than the skin. And uh, all these phenomena like conduction, convection, and radiation are extremely limited when exercising warm or hot environment. And if radiation and convection are zero or negligible, the only way for the athletes to thermoregulate is through evaporation of sweat. It is important to precise that is not the fact of sweating that allows the athletes to thermoregulate but the evaporation of the sweat produced. That is a change from the liquid state of the sweat to the gaseous state and this transformation. This evaporation consumes energy, which is thermal energy. So in humid environments, which limits the evaporation of sweats are much more restrictive and much more limiting to performance than hot and dry environments. Okay, then one last point. It is produced in the muscle and must be evacuated through the skin for evaporation. It must therefore be transported from the muscle to the skin in order to evaporate in the, into the environment. 
an analogy with your car is a perfect way to illustrate this. In your car, the engine produces heat. This heat is dissipated into the environment at the radiator at the front of the car. The cooling liquid carries this heat from the engine to the fan of the radiator and back again after being cooled to the engine. In the human body is exactly the same thing. The engine that produce it is muscle. The radiator at the front of the car is the skin and the cooling liquid that transports the heat is the blood. This implies that when exercising in a hot environment, there is a redistribution of blood flow to the skin to optimize thermoregulation and evaporation process. This means too that stress represents a kind of cardiovascular stress. This blood redistributed to the skin does not participate in the cardiac refilling in the same way as the blood that is redicted to the muscle. There is therefore a decrease in what is called the systolic ejection volume of heart, that is a blood ejected by the heart at each contraction, will be compensated for by an increase in the heart rate. This means that for a given exercise at a given intensity that requires a given cardiac output, the air rate will be higher in hot environments than in a neutral or temperate environment. We must therefore consider heat stress as a cardiac stress. Except that, as you know, the increase in heart rate is limited. And therefore, when the intensity is increased, there is a decrease in cardiac output and therefore a decrease in performance, which is linked to the production of metabolic heat. Okay, sorry, was a very long introduction to answer to no, your, this your is, initial question, but this, I think it's very important to understand the the all the paper. This is perfect because, and I'm gonna te- I'm gonna I'm gonna set this up for the differences that I know you want to dive into in a second, but the fact that we as humans have different ways of dissipating heat starts yeah. to explain why marathon distances need to be treated differently as compared to ultra marathon distances when we're thinking about how to thermoregulate correctly. So let's get into the second part of that question, right? These fundamental differences between the thermal stress that an athlete is going to experience during a marathon versus the thermal stress that they're going to experience during an ultra marathon. About metabolic heat production during a endurance running, hail running and the use of trekking poles increase muscle recruitment and impair running economy, consequently resulting in increased heat production for a given running speed. Furthermore, the low running pace and the long section of walking during ultra endurance running limit self-generated wind velocity and convective cooling when compared with marathon running. However, as we have seen, the main factor for heat production is exercise intensity. And longer events may be less prone to hyperthermia in given environment as they are performed at lower intensity. The metabolic heat production is then therefore a rather 
protective or less deleterious factor in the limitation of performance in relation to it in favor of the ultra marathon running over the marathon running. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I got it. And so let, let me kind of, let, let me kind of recap that. And I think yeah. this once again, sets up kind of the conundrum with uh, ultra marathon running because the intensity is lower you are not yeah. in an in an ultra marathon setting you are not producing yeah. as much metabolic heat but yeah. paradoxically because because the intensity is lower also the speed is lower and so yeah. the wind that is uh, that is helping to evaporate uh the sweat off of your skin which is part of one of one of your cooling mechanisms is not as great so you have this yin and yang, you have, you have like this yin and yang effect where the intensity is not contributing to the thermal stress as much, but the fact that you're going slower actually does contribute to, uh, to, to the thermal stress in an ultramarathon event. Uh, it's perfect. <laughs> Better than my explanation. Also... Yes, Sebastian, please. If I may, we should also consider the duration of the event. One of the main differences between marathon and ultramarathon is duration and intensity of the event. And for a long time, for decades, we have been considering the duration only because most of the studies in thermal regulation have been done with militaries or in occupational setting with a more constant load model. So we, for a long time, we thought that the duration was a this factor so that ultra endurance athlete may be at a higher risk than endurance athlete. But it turns out that when you work with athletes, it's different than working in occupational setting. When you work with athletes, the main risk factor is the intensity. And that's something that became very clear, notably after the 2016 Cycling World Championship. We made some measurement of temperature in some of the elite athletes participating to the World Champ. And we saw that actually the same athlete could reach higher temperature in a time trial, that is a race of 40, 45 minutes, than in a road race. A road race is three hours for the women, six hours for the men. So it was clear that for the same athlete, actually a shorter race was actually at a higher risk of reaching high temperature than a longer race. Hence, this question about marathon versus ultramarathon and the reason why we start this uh, series of work. Yeah, and this actually came out, uh, you guys are probably not aware of this, this actually came out in an earlier, actually two earlier podcasts, now that I'm thinking about it. One of them with Alan McCubbin out of Australia, and the other one with Stavros Koros, who's here uh, in Arizona. And one of the things that they mentioned is your body can tolerate these extreme internal temperatures for a very short amount of time. And if you're in those situations, certain cooling interventions make more sense than other cooling interventions in a situation where you're exposed to the heat for a long period of time. And the one that came up was a menthol uh, mouth, mouth rinse, which is becoming more and more popular at the shorter events. Because what it does is it tricks you into thinking that you're cooler, but it doesn't actually reduce the thermal stress. So if you're in the situation like, uh, Sebastian, you were mentioning earlier, like a time trial situation where the event is only 40 minutes or 60 minutes, and you can tolerate a high amount of thermal stress for a short period of time, 
that menthol mouth rinse might be a good intervention because you're just tricking your body into thinking that it's cooler. But if you're in a longer event, and we're talking about ultramarathon, this is why it's not a good application in ultramarathon event. If you're in a longer event where you can't tolerate that amount of thermal stress because of the duration, that type of inter- intervention is probably counterproductive because eventually you're going you're gonna to not be able to tolerate that high level of thermal stress because of the, the, dur- the duration of things. Just wanted to comment on the menthol because now it's quite a, a fashion intervention and everybody's talking about menthol and so on. Um, I have a bit of a different opinion than most people on that. Mm. As you said, Manthol is just a perceptual intervention. It will not change your thermoregulation at all. So that means if somebody asks me, who is just an amateur runner, go for a run in the heat, I don't feel very well, I slow down. If I take some manthol, I will probably feel better. I will probably go a bit longer yeah. or a bit uh, faster. But when you look at elite athlete, the response is totally different. An elite athlete that is uh, running for the, to win a race is already motivated, mm. is already at the limit of his physiological capacity, and taking or not taking manfall will not change anything to his performance. And that's, uh, we did a questionnaire very recently during the Doha World Championship, during the road race that were in hot ambient condition. And uh, one to two percent of the athletes only were using manfall for pre-cooling or for mid-cooling. So it's really not something so common in elite athletes. This is more for amateur athletes. Yeah, it's a, that's a really interesting point that you bring that the elite athletes might are already highly motivated, and that trick isn't just go, is it is because it is just a trick is not going to be as effective for them. I appreciate, I appreciate that insight there. Um, I'll put links in the show notes to those, those two podcasts. Uh, cause we did discuss that, uh, that aspect, but, uh, Nicholas, I kind of want to get back to the, um, the dialogue here and talk, yeah. uh, talk about something that is very unique to ultra marathons. And this is the duration. And we know that duration affects athletes in a number of different ways, but one of one of the ways, particularly in an ultramarathon setting that makes it unique, is that the duration provides the environment an opportunity to go through these big cycles of hot and cold. And if you think about a normal ultramarathon race, it starts in the morning. It's usually cold, except in Europe, for whatever reason, they wanted to start all these races in the evening in Europe. But most races in the U.S. will start in the morning where it's ver- relatively cold. It'll then go through the peak of the afternoon, which is the hottest time of the day. And a lot of athletes are then finishing in the evening where it's very, where it's very cool. This changes the way that athletes can approach their thermoregulatory strategies. Why don't we talk about how, how the complexities of that and how it relates to the, the paper that you produced? This is a, an interesting question, but one that has been little study to our knowledge in the literature. I will therefore be relatively brief as this or just assertion and source, but how can being confronted with large vari- variations in temperature and altitude have a specific influence on thermoregulation? That is the question. The first thing that um, can be said is the temperature variation are important, and specifically in Rainier Island from zero degree to 30 to 35 degrees, but not major. 
on ultra endurance races, we rarely encounter a temperature below zero degree, which creates a relative physiological constraint. It's not on being confronted, confronted sorry, with minus 10, minus 20, or minus 30 degrees. The second thing, and this uh, was discussed on the, on the paper, is that cold temperature exposition requires the carrying of equipment, and very often this is compulsory on the races. Warm clothes, gloves, and raincoats to anticipate change in environmental condition. This can act as uh, either a protective measure in relation to heat by reduce, reducing direct radiation, for example, or as an aggravating measure by inhibiting evaporation or increasing the waste to be carried and therefore the production of metabolic heat. The last but not least thing on this part of creation is more about preparation and chronic adaptation of athletes. It is important to know that the best countermeasure that can be practiced fighting against it is acclimatization and training in the heat. It is indeed recommended before a race in hot environment to train in natural hot environment or in laboratory to protect health and improve performance. This allows for fixed intensity to reduce the health rate, to decrease the skin and central temperature, to increase the sweat flow, and therefore to improve the work capacity. However, some athletes fear that Heat training will have deleterious effects during temperate race or during passages in cold environments. Rest assured, there is no deleterious effect of heat training on performance in temperate or cold climate. Either it will have no effect or it will have a positive effect. So if there is a slightest chance or risk of it being hot, it is essential to train in the heat before an ultra-endurance running. And what, Nicholas, can I ask you, what are the limits of that? Because a lot of athletes will take that as, I should train in hot environments all of the time. Because if you present this, if you present this proposition that it's either neutral or beneficial, they'll say, well, I need to layer up and run in my down jacket or run in my long sleeve shirt to increase the thermal stress in a, not in a natural way, but in an unnatural way. So in, in your, in your estimation, what are the limits of that? I mean, should athletes be going out and seeking hotter environments and contriving things to run in hotter environments based on, you know, based on that strategy? Oh, sorry. I think I need help. Yeah, that's fine. Sebastian, you want to jump in there? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Sorry, Jason. There will be two parts in my answer. The first one is that heat training is a stimulus at any other one, and you need to be plan in your training year. So in the same way that you will go for an altitude training camp, for example, you can go for a heat training camp. Mm-hmm. This is a, you will not run only uphill, you will not run only downhill during the year, so you will also not run only in the heat. If you were only training in the heat, that will impact the training intensity. 
because after a couple of hours, for example, or after even uh, 30 minutes in the heat, the thermal stress, that is the cardiovascular stress, as Nicola explained previously, will reduce your absolute training intensity. So you do not want to only run in the heat. That's the first part of the answer. The second part is planifying your uh, training is the same for any type of training. You cannot be at the top all of the year. So you plan generally for one or two major races during the year. And your training is done in a way that you will have some hard training period, then you will have a taper, and then you will reach your peak at the time of the race. That's the same thing for the heat adaptation. If you want to maintain it constant for good the year, then you will have an average level of adaptation all the year as you can have with your fitness. But you have to manipulate it in the same way you manipulate your fitness by trying to reach a peak of adaptation at the time of the race. I love uh, that's a great answer, Sebastian, because I don't want athletes to come away with this and say, oh, I just need to train in the in a hot environment all the time. Your point that you need to periodize it strategically is very well taken. And one of the things that that we all, we all recognize here and the audience should understand is that any of these heat acclimation adaptations that we're seeking are relatively acute. They happen in very short time frames, and they also kind of go away in very short time frames. It doesn't take a lot of dose to achieve it, but it's not like you have to spend four or five months in a hot environment. Those adaptations happen very quickly on the order of days or maybe even a week versus the typical endurance adaptations that we're looking at, which take months or years to, to, to really manifest. So that is a really good point that, that periodizing uh, heat, uh, heat interventions throughout the year is a, is a very smart way to go about it. That's correct. In terms of timeline, just you will need one to two weeks of training in the heat in order to gain the adaptation, and you will retain some adaptation for up to one month after your uh, heat training block. Yep, very good guideline right there. I think that illustrates it really well. Okay, so Nicholas, we're we're kind of get we're going to get back to you because one of the other things in the, in the paper that I thought was really interesting were this this cascade of effects that can stem from dehydration and or poor hydration combined with thermal stress because it's not just overheating that the athlete will will ultimately experience there's a cascade of effects that happens after all of these uh after all of these unfold what can you say about that okay i think beyond the hydration and the hydration cascade which is like a reflection of an imbalance in the body homeostasis what must be understood is all the repercussion of it on organism. And it's important to know that him can kill. Okay, it's difficult to, to say, but it's it very kill. deadly. You're but, right. It's very deadly. Yeah, yeah. What environmental conditions are responsible for more deaths than all other sources of environmental mortality combined tsunami, fires, earthquakes? These heat strokes mainly affect subject at risk like elderly or people with chronic pathologies, but it can also affect athletes with exercise-induced heat stroke. 
its stroke during the exercise is the second leading cause of death after cardiac arrest. And some authors even believe that the incidence of exercise-induced its stroke is greatly underestimated and could be 10 times higher than uh, that of cardiac arrest. So what happens when adaptive systems are uh, overwhelmed? If metabolic heat production exceeds dissipative capacity, body temperature gradually increases until excesses stop or heat-related illness. This pathological entity covers a wide spectrum of clinical form, ranging from heat edema or rash, muscle cramps, syncopa, to the most severe forms of heat exhaustion of heat exercise, heat stroke. Exercise heat stroke is defined as a core body temperature above 40, 40.5 degrees associated with neurological disorder, loss of consciousness, confusion, irrational behavior, disorientation, etc., related to physical exertion. This pathology is a medical emergency. When its stress exceeds a certain threshold, the body will experience an exaggerated inflammatory response that may be associated with the development of disseminated intravascular coagulation, which is a critical pathophysiological feature of exercise-induced source. Indeed, the development of diffuse microthrombosis impairs blood flow in the microcirculation, leading to multi-organ dysfunction, brain, heart, lung, liver, and intestine, and even death. Despite regular hydration during training, running, or exercise, like at the walk, a uh, post-exercise deficit in body water is observed, especially after prolonged exercise. This water deficit can have a deleterious effect on cardiovascular stress, exercise tolerance, performance, and health. In addition, as the rate of sweating increases during heat stress, there is a concomitant increase in electrolyte loss, particularly of sodium and chlorine. A potentially severe complication of endurance and ultraendurance event is exercise-associated hyponatremia. A 2010 publication found hyponatremia in over half of participants in a nutritory race in California. But um, this influence fluctuates widely in the literature. Several risk factors have been linked with development of exercise-associated hyponatremia. The major risk factor seems to be overhydration or excessive fluid consumption during activity. Whilst where high prayer hydration can lead to exercise-associated hyponatremia, hypohydration during exercise in hot ambient condition can increase the risk of developing exertional heat illness. And moreover, pronounced dehydration uh, associated with influx of muscle protein like myoglobin caused by muscle damage may lead to kidney damage and worsen the heat stress challenges. 
the prevalence of uh, this acute kidney dysfunction in ultramarathon running in, is nearly 45% of all running according to uh, lit all runner, sorry, according to literature. Okay, and I think that's it for the physiopathology and, and the pathology. So he, here's, I think, where what the listeners can really take away from this. First off, in ultramarathon events, this aspect of dehydration is quite prevalent. You said 45%, right? Uh, yeah. When they're looking at, uh, uh, I think, the race in California that they're referring to as the Western States 100. Marty Hoffman, uh, who's the formal me- former medical director there, has done a lot of research. Yeah, yeah probably. Yeah, in that, <laughs> in that area. But there's this two, there's this kind of one-two punch that dehydration has in with respect to ultramarathon uh, with respect to ultramarathoners the first one is is everybody realizes is that it decreases performance everybody knows that it seems to be a, a recognized aspect that we're trying to avoid dehydration but the second yeah. thing is is it actually decreases your thermal tolerance as well which acts as a positive feedback loop because that in turn decreases exercise performance also and also as you mentioned Nicholas can have serious, much bigger than performance, serious health consequences. I mean, pe- people can yeah. people can die from it. Not that we're trying to be alarmist or anything like that. But on the flip side of it, hyponatremia, which is low blood sodium, is primarily driven by over drinking. And yeah. ultramarathoners have always been caught in this battle between staving off dehydration by consuming fluids and fluids with electrolytes and not consuming too much so that they end up hyponatremic. And it's not an easy problem to for ultramarathoners to solve. As you know, the literature indicates, we see a lot of ultramarathoners at the end of races that are hyponatremic, and we see a lot of ultramarathoners at the end of races that are also dehydrated. And yeah. I'm kind of wondering, and Sebastian, you might need to jump in, jump into this, why is this why is this so difficult for runners to solve like what like why is it so complex to just drink the right amount of fluid and have the right amount of electrolytes it's kind of impossible to give an absolute amount for everybody if you take two runners one of them may sweat around the uh, 800 grams per hour and another one may sweat more than three liters per hour. Yes. So there is huge inter-individual difference between runners, even between runners of the same level with the same training and so on. So there is large inter-individual differences between different humans. So it's not possible to give an absolute number to drink per hour. So the take-home message that your audience should remember is first, it's normal to lose some weight during an event. That's totally normal. You cannot ex- expect to maintain your body weight during a race. Firstly, because capacity to drink is generally limited. So it's true that in ultramarathon with a hydration bag and so on, it's easier than in traditional marathon. But secondly also, because your uh, gut filtration capacity is quite limited we cannot absorb more than 1.2 liters per hour. So if you drink more than that, it's an average, it's different between people, but roughly an average, we absorb a max of 1.2 liters per hour. So everything else that you drink will just stay in your stomach. 
will not be of any benefit for you. You will just have a big, heavy stomach and nothing else. Right. So first, second message is, it's normal to lose some weight during a race. Second message is, there is generally no point at drinking more than one, 1.2 liter an hour. And third message, drinking too much and gaining weight is absolutely not normal. Yes. If you're finishing a race with a higher body weight that you start the race or even a training, that's a clear sign that you have been over drinking. Yes. You can do the test during training, just jump on the scale when you, uh, before to go for your run and when you come back. And if you have been gaining weight, it's clearly a sign that you have been drinking too much. I, all Sebastian, all those messages have been resonated in this podcast several several times. I'm, I'm kind of laughing over at the over at the end of the other end of this. Absolutely, um, there is a huge individual variability, not only in people's sweat rate, but also in people's sweat sodium concentrations, and it it's, it becomes very difficult and tricky to pinpoint. Um, some of the old time runners will remember it wasn't that long ago that big races, at least here in the U S I know in Europe, this is, has not been as common, but here in the U S with big races, such as the Western States 100 and the Wasatch 100, they used to weigh runners at, at certain aid stations. And if they were underweight by a certain percentage and that percentage moved around, uh, over the years, they would either have to withdraw from the race or they would have to be held uh, in the aid station until they got their weight up. We've, we've now learned that that gives runners a poor message, Sebastian, as you were alluding to, where runners should be losing a little bit of weight, especially in an ultra marathon over the course of time. How much is debatable, and this is what the research is trying to tease out, but a few percent you know, weight loss, isn't it, it, should, be, it should be expected uh, in an ultra marathon setting. And we shouldn't try to be keeping people weight neutral in an ultra marathon setting. It is not only about how much it is also about when to lose it. Mm. Because you, if you are getting dehydrated from the beginning of the race, then you will be dehydrated for the rest of the race, because during the race itself, it will be impossible to revert the dehydration due to limited absorption capacity. So the most important is to start the race well hydrated. So to drink well, for example, before the race also, not only during the race, but at the end of the race, it doesn't matter so much anymore. If you get dehydrated during the last hour of the race, who cares? You're almost there. So <laughs> your progressive dehydration will only have the last minute of your race. So it's, it's not the same effect. You should not be drinking with the same rate at the end of the race than you do at the beginning. And also, maybe I would like to say a word on that, it's not only the hydration during the race. Hydration is a continuous process. Yes. That's a recovery after the race with a drink, with a food, and that's also the preparation before the race. And sometimes we see people thinking, oh, I'm going to exercise in the heat, so I will drink a lot before. But when you do, the first response of your body when you drink more than usual is just to increase the urine production. You drink more, you pee more, to speak very simply. Because your body is not used to regulate that amount of water, and it takes two, three days to regulate it. So if you want to improve your hydration level before a race in hot ambient condition, you need to start drinking a bit more days before not just before the race and during the race. Yes. Sebastian, those are great ways to sum things up. We're, we're going to leave it at that. Um, I really appreciate both of you guys' time. 
uh, Nicholas, kind of starting with you, where, where can, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to the research that you did, because uh, I think all athletes should go and, and, and take a look at it and read it. It's a, it's a, it's an easy read, even for people who aren't involved in reading, reading yeah. scientific research, but where can people find more about some of the work that you're doing? Well, we publish all the results of our work on Twitter and we try to systematically popularize our articles in the form of didacted uh, understand the double infographics. Or, of course, scientist articles are also available if, if you want. But uh, I think you can find this on my Twitter account is at Nick N. Buscarin, N B O U S C A R R E N. Sorry. <laughs> And I'll include a link to that uh, uh, Twitter handle in the show notes as well. Sebastian, uh, any okay. any any final follow ups from your from your end? Yeah. So in addition of Twitter, that is always an interesting source of information. I will also redirect you toward the leaflet that was done by World Athletics regarding Broadway event. I appreciate that ultra endurance and Broadway event may be of a different world sometimes. But uh, still, there is uh, some uh, good and basic recommendation in this leaflet for amateur runners during mass participation event about how to manage a heat stress and to prepare for the heat stress. And for the readers who are a bit more interested in the science, science behind it, a lot of uh, educational material and resources have been uh, published this year before the Tokyo Olympics. And the website of the British Journal of Sport Medicine includes a virtual e-edition with uh, editorials with a simple take-home message and simple figures to illustrate how to prepare for the heat. Excellent. Well, thank both of you. I thank both of you on behalf of the community for the work that you're doing. Um, whenever I run across researchers that not only have an impact on performance, but also from a safety perspective, and obviously thermal stress is a big safety concern, as, as we mentioned from the onset, I always think we need to uh, give an extra special kudos and appreciate those researchers even more because there's more to life than performance and everybody wants to go out and push themselves. And if we can do it in a safe manner and be more educated about how things like heat actually impact us, I think it's all the better. So thank you guys. And thank you guys from the community. I really appreciate it. And Nicholas in particular for you, I know you're nervous about the English part of this. You did yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. The, the, <laughs> listener, the listeners are going to love it. So I really appreciate you putting the time uh, together to put some of these answers uh, together for our listeners. Thank you, Jason. And there you have it, folks. Much thanks to Nicholas and Sebastian for coming on the podcast today. Nicholas, I really appreciate you going out on a limb with this one. I know that you're really nervous about English not being your first language, but I love the conversation. I hope that the listeners out there got a lot out of it. And I also appreciate the research that you have put into the space because this concept of heat stress is something that ultra runners are always going to have to contend with. And we always will have to learn more and more about it in order to maximize performance. Appreciate the heck out of everybody listening today. And as always, we will see you out on the trails.